Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Last week, we did look at uh, the beginning of the parables that Jesus shared. He, he did something very unusual. He shared three parables back to back to back, uh, one right after the other. Uh, no break, no stopping in between, just moving straight forward from one to the next. Someone loses a sheep, someone loses a coin, someone loses a son in the third one. In each, something was lost, and then it was found. His listeners knew the meaning of these stories. The people who were far from God heard these stories, and they said, that's me. That is so me. That's my story. I was lost like that sheep. I was missing like that coin. I was the prodigal son that took off to a distant country. Now I've been found and the one that found me is Jesus. Now that'd be dramatic enough, but Jesus doesn't stop there. That was not the end of the story. He reintroduces a character that's just been barely kind of mentioned in the first part. He brings back now full steam. If you thought things were tense before with the first son, you haven't seen anything yet. What you need to remember is that Jesus is telling these stories to two distinct groups. There were those who were saying, I was lost, but now I'm found. And then there were the spiritual leaders who were uh, the instigators of, this, of these parables who think they're always home. They've always been home. They never left home. Home just kind of grew up around them. They're home. They is home. They were never lost in the first place, and now they're grumbling about what Jesus is doing in going after those who are lost. The primary message of the first part of this last of the three parables is, of course, that the prodigal came to himself. That is, he repented of his sin and thus was restored into relationship with his family. The prodigal son, who wished his father dead because in those days to take your inheritance early was never done, it was basically to say, I'm, I'm basically operating under the concept here that you're dead, dad, so give me the money now and ran off with his inheritance, only to waste it on wild living, and now he's come to his senses, he's come home, even if he only believes as he's coming home that he's gonna come back and beg to be one of his father's servants. The father, of course, is not interested in this hired servant plan, and instead runs out to his son when he appears and offers him grace, a place in his home once again. There's only one thing left to do, and it's celebrate. Just a side note here. If you think our Heavenly Father, who is represented in this parable by the earthly father, is some strict, overbearing, no fun, fuddy-duddy, think again. Read these parables again in Luke 15 and see how many times celebrating, partying is mentioned. And that's exactly what this earthly father does. Quick, he says, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. The father hosts a party to celebrate, but not just any old party. Meat was not a part of the regular daily diet back then, but was kept for special occasions. And when a special occasion arose, a family would usually slaughter a sheep or a goat because the smaller animal was a smaller loss if you will, a smaller sacrifice than a calf. They would keep the fattened calf only for huge, capital bold letters, huge celebrations, for when the entire village would then be coming together to share. In slaughtering the fattened calf, the father is involving the entire community. He's sending a very clear message that he has restored his son to sonship and therefore to the community as a member of the community as well. Feasting and music and dancing goes on into the night. And now we're set for the rest of the story. The elder brother, who so far has been the, in the background, now emerges center stage. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. He's been working hard all day. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. 
Now, one of the marks of the genius of Jesus' teachings is that we find ourselves irresistibly identifying with one or more of the characters in these parables. You can learn a lot about yourself by figuring out which one of the characters you start to identify with. I'm the older son in my family, for instance, and I know what it is to live to please my parents and to want to be the model son, to want to have my teachers be proud of me, to try to do the right thing and to say the right thing, and to want to have people think the best of me. As they might have thought and spoken so well of this elder brother, who, after all, didn't run off, didn't squander his inheritance, but stayed home and worked. You may understand something about the elder brother, too, because it's kind of an odd thing. When you decide to come home, when you decide to stop being the prodigal son, one of two things will happen to you. Either you will become more and more like the father, or you'll become more and more like the elder brother. It is actually a fairly hard thing to stop being the prodigal son and not to turn into the elder brother. I'll give you a for instance. Uh, in the church I was pastoring, uh, we had grown so that the walls were bulging and we were too big and we were having that age-old discussion. Should we, should we you know, divide and multiply? Should we expand? Should we buy new property? We had a meeting. And well, one fellow stood up and said, I got in the door now. Can we lock them? Right? That's one way to stop this problem. Let's just lock the doors now that I got in. And that's kind of what, what, the, what is going on here. It's kind of this hard thing to kind of come in and then not turn around and start saying, well, now I'm in. Can't we just lock, shut this down? Like, that's what, that solves the problem. No thought about anybody else. So we're going to get real clear here about the heart of the elder brother. And some of you are going to be called to come home to the father, just as some were called to come home to him last week. The elder brother has been working in the fields for his father, as per usual. And as he approaches the house, he's surprised to hear there's a, there's a party going on. Now, if all were well in the heart of his son, he would immediately enter into the party and enter into the joy, whatever the source of the joy was. He was conscientious. He's a hard worker. In short, we might also say that he was the ideal son in many ways. Certainly not like the wild younger son who was such a disappointment to his father. And if this was all we knew about the older brother, we would have a pretty positive picture painted of him here. Jesus doesn't fault the morality or the obedience or the worth ethic of this older brother. However, he does fault his attitude. In spite of his many commendable qualities and his tireless service to the father, the elder son was not right where it matters the most in his heart. There are two hints right here at the start that this son has a heart problem, has an attitude problem. The first is determined by his absence earlier on. In the first part of this parable, the shepherd conducts an all-out search for his lost sheep. In the second parable, a woman does the same for her lost coin. In the third, the father searches out the window, continually looking down the road for his lost son, searching in his heart for him. But there is not this same hands-on, physical, all-out search for the lost son. And we can attribute that somewhat to the fact that this prodigal son left on his own. He left on his own volition. He wasn't lost per se, although from another perspective, he certainly was lost to the father. Here's the thing. Someone in that day and age had the responsibility from the get-go of reconciling the younger brother to his father. Anyone want to guess who that responsibility fell to? The older brother. It was part of the responsibility that came, comes with being the older brother of the estate. You got the lion's share of the estate. You were the, the next patriarch of the family, so to speak. It was your job to keep the unity in the family. And it was your job to represent and take care of the reputation of your family in the community. And he was supposed to be immediately on the search, immediately trying to reconcile his younger son and his dad. He's absent. 
He's absent. Secondly, we see he's suspicious from the very beginning. Ordinarily, it would be expected. He comes and sees there's a party going on. He would just go straight into the house and ask his father what was going on. But there's a chill in the air, and it's coming from his heart. So instead, he stays outside, and he asks the servant, you know, what's going on? He doesn't go inside to check it out for himself. There's no communication with the father. The answer he received then isn't exactly what he was expecting to hear, but he's suspicious, right? Your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. So far, things are a little off, but now everything gets shoved under the front burner with that announcement. A Sunday school teacher is teaching on this elder son to her class and wanting to lead them into it, so she says, but there is one in this story for whom the return of the prodigal son brings no joy and celebration. There's one who experiences only disappointment and bitterness and resentment. Who was it? And one of the kids raises his hand as fast as he can and says, the fattened calf. <laughs> and he has a point. Unfortunately, in this moment, humor and joy are not in the mind of the elder brother because Jesus says his response to this news is, then he became angry and refused to go in. You want to talk about a short fuse? He just, right then and there, what? It's for my brother. He's come back. He's, there's a, we're having a huge celebration. I'm angry and I'm not going in. The first mark of the elder brother's cold heart is this chronic frosty resentment, frozen anger, if you will. It's not explosive. He doesn't go around tearing things apart. It's often not even revealed. It's simmering beneath the surface, the kind of anger that paralyzes and chokes what might have once been a generous heart. This older son resented his brother for leaving in the first place and then resented him from coming home. And now he resents his father for taking him back. And then he resents the celebration. This resentment manifested itself, as it always does, in, the, in a refusal to enter into joy. It's toxic to those who harbor it in their hearts. Yet one of the major themes, there's contrast going on here, and I'm just trying to point it out to you, yet one of the major themes in this 15th chapter of Luke is the theme of joy. In the first story that Jesus tells, a shepherd finds his sheep, calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. And then Jesus says, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Joy for everyone. Same thing in the next story. A woman looks for a coin. She finds it. She calls her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. Jesus adds, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And then the next story, the prodigal son who's far away comes back home and the father embraces him and says, we must eat and celebrate for the son of mine was lost and is found. Joy. Shepherds, neighbors, friends, heaven, women, angels of God, Father, the Son, the village, everybody's entering into joy all through these stories except for one person. There's a party going on and the Father, his servants, and the whole village are there and the person the Father would expect to be joyful with him is the one joyless person in the bunch his older son. How could this father, the son, is thinking, welcome back this brother who squandered his, his father's inheritance, the gifts that his dad gave him on wild living. See, he would have preferred his prodigal brother stayed lost. He would have preferred that his prodigal brother never returned home. The son refuses to go in. Now this much this is much more serious to Jesus' listeners than we might first realize. As the oldest son, once again, the elder brother would have had kind of a semi-official responsibility to be the joint host with a father, with the father, at any public gatherings that they put on. 
mingle with the guests, make sure everybody's had enough, all those kind of host type things. So when this brother refuses to go in, this is a highly dramatic action to Jesus' listeners. Last week we practiced our gasp. This would be another place for a gasp. What? What? See, we need to remember ourselves. We need to remember, why do we do what we do? We serve the Lord to please him, not for our own pleasure. We just sang, your favor is my delight. Favor, your favor is my, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for you. For your pleasure, Father, not for mine. The elder son doesn't understand any of this. I'll tell you how resentment works for those of us who wrestle with the other brother or the elder brother syndrome. Theologian Frederick Beekner, who incidentally just passed away at the age of 96 this past Monday, he wrote this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. Kind of what? To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, or roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations, to savor to last the last toothsome morsel, the, the pain that you have given and the pain that you are giving back. In many ways, in many ways, it's, it's like this feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is you're wolfing down yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. See, we're going to come to this in a moment, but he deliberately, openly chooses to expose his father to public humiliation. Jesus' listeners would have would expected the father would be furious. There would be a big gasp, and he has every right to be. He could simply order his son into the house. He didn't have a reason Otherwise, parents understand this, don't we? When I was a kid and I tried to get out of something my parents wanted me to do, I would say to them, why? Why do I have to do that? They might reason with me for a little while, but eventually when they got tired of my evasions or couldn't think of any reasons why, they would fall back on a naked appeal to power and authority. Use the same phrase that all parents have used since Adam and Eve. Why should you? Because I said so, right? I hated that when I was a kid. I swore I would never do it myself. Now I'm on the other side of having raised a family of my own. I used it more times than I want to admit. And just like me, they didn't like it either, especially Jennifer, my wife. <laughs> the father could just order his son Go in because I said so. And the son probably would have gone. The son understands about taking orders. But you see, the father doesn't want another hired servant. He didn't want external obedience. And frankly, neither does God. He wants a right heart. And that cannot be forced. And that cannot be given grudgingly. There is a door to your heart. And God has given you the key to it. And God Almighty himself will not force that door open. The son's spot at the table is empty. So the father steps out to urge his older son to join them. He goes out in humble love, even though he could have gone out in judgment. Just like with the first son. He comes instead in humble love, just as he went out to the prodigal son the first time, in humble love. When we expect judgment, we expect anger, he goes out in humble love. And he pleads, although he wouldn't have to do that. No one would expect him to. The very fact that the father goes out and begs and pleads would raise another gasp from everybody. What? What? The father who extended extravagant grace to the younger son offers it to the older son as well. But the son will not go in. The truth is, friends, in a strange way, he's beginning to enjoy this resentment. It feeds his sense of self-righteous superiority. He could not stand the thought that his brother could live as a wayward sinner and yet be accepted back into the fold upon returning home. It is almost as if he was complaining, I didn't get to do all that fun stuff because I, I stayed at home. 
I feel like I was cheated if he gets to come back and like nothing ever happened. It seems almost as if the older son is envious of the experiences of his younger brother. Oh, just imagine the freedom he had. Oh, I bet it was great. Oh, and now he gets to have that and come home too. See, what is obvious is that this older son had worked for those years in expectation of receiving a reward for his work. He wasn't just doing it because he loved his dad, loved the family. He, he was doing it with an expectation of receiving something back for a reward for his work. The labor he provided for his dad wasn't offered out of love. It was presented as the means of obtaining what he wanted. A son should serve his father out of love and not out of a sense of getting something in exchange for his service. Yet this son has worked in anticipation of receiving something back for his labor. The elder son is extremely angry at his dad. The main reason given in this passage is that for all that he did, his father never gave him the appreciation or the enjoyment that he could have had with his friends. See, secretly, he's thinking, I, I wish I could just run off with my friends and have a good time too. He misunderstood the reason behind keeping the laws of the father. He did everything that a dutiful son would do, but the intention, the attitude was wrong. And now here he sits, the elder brother. There's a party going on. And all those who are seeking to live in the kingdom of God are at this party. All those who have learned and are learning to let go of resentments, learning to practice forgiveness, learning to live in truth-filled grace and mercy. There's a party going on. It's how Jesus describes the kingdom of God. And some of you friends are sitting on the front porch and resentment is festering inside you right now and you won't go in. You have a parent who did not live up to your needs or your wants, as no parent does, or a spouse who hurt you, as every spouse will, or a child who disappointed you, as every child has, or a wound from your work. The truth is, as you know in your heart, you are enjoying a little bit the resentment that comes from this. I tell you as plainly as I know how, you are at the knife right now. You are at the knife. And this is what they used to do, certainly back, and maybe still do, for all I know, up in the Arctic. In the Arctic, when they want to catch a wolf, do you know what they do? They don't necessarily set a trap, although I think some do. What they do is they get a very sharp knife, and they impale some meat on it, and they stick it into the ground. And then a wolf comes along and starts to chew off the meat bit by bit by bit, bit by bit by bit, and in the cold and in, in the fervor of it all, starts to cut his tongue on the, on the blade of the knife embedded in the meat. And the blood actually only spurs him on. This is juicy. And he eats more and more and more until he finally bleeds to death. Until he finally just bleeds to death. And some of you right now are at the knife. You're at the knife. And little by little, joy and mercy and graciousness and patience are being bled right out of you. You're enjoying the feast on resentment. So I'm asking you now, will you just let go of resentment? Will you begin to forgive? If you can't do that, will you ask God for the grace to begin to forgive? If there's someone that you need to talk to, extend forgiveness to, will you do it? See, there's a spirit of resentment in this son. The father comes out and pleads with him. Once again, in that day and culture, remember, he's the patriarch, the Lord of his land. And the Lord of his land did not go to someone. Everyone came to him. But much like he did with his younger son, the father is willing to suffer personal indignity, humiliation for the sake of the one he loves. Just as he ran out to his prodigal son coming down the road, which a, which a lord of the land never did, now he goes out and begs with his son. He goes out again to the other son for the sake of the one he loves. 
He comes out and he begs his older son to come in and join the celebration, but he won't go in. The next thing that we notice is this, there's a spirit of chronic bitter complaining. The pleading must have, must have just been too much to bear. Like a dam that gives way, the older son breaks loose with great emotion, all the feelings that he's held back for a long time. Out comes resentment toward dad for not giving him what he thinks he deserves. He's embittered by his brother's unbridled passions and wasted living. The last thing in the world he wants to do is have a party, and he makes that really perfectly clear. First, he's caught up in resentment, and then that leads right into complaining. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a measly little young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And there it is. This is how we know the older brother also didn't know the heart of his father. The younger son wants the father sing things and he wants them now. The older son is also using the father to get the things he wants, the status, the wealth, the blessing, to fulfill his own agenda. His relationship with the father is also broken. When we are far from God's heart, we start to focus on ourselves. We focus on our own agenda when, in fact, we should be focusing even more so on God so that we can get back into the fold, so that we can experience his love and grace. Suddenly, the picture of the older brother isn't so pretty anymore. This hardworking son has a corrupt heart. His heart is characterized by anger, envy, self-righteousness, contempt, pettiness. It's cold. On the outside, he appears to be the warm, ideal son. On the inside, he's full of anger and jealousy, and everybody suffers as a result of his attitude. The prodigal son was deprived of the warm, loving welcome he should have received from his older brother. The father was torn away from the celebration to plead with a son plagued with an evil disposition, and the elder brother himself suffers. By his attitude, he has cut himself off from the fellowship and the joys of his father's household. He stands outside. He stays outside, miserable, angry, and alone. Now, the first striking or chilling thing here is he does not address his dad as father. Titles of respect were real important in those days. If you noticed, even the prodigal son, each time that he speaks to address his dad, he addresses him every single time as father, 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 father. But this son, the one who stayed home, the one who's been with his dad all this time, this son comes to his father with no respect and launches into his complaint. And all he really does in the process is reveal his stone-cold heart. All these years, he just kind of like, look, he doesn't even bother like dad or anything. All these years I've been slaving for you. Now there's rich irony here, and I've, and I've never disobeyed your orders. And he really thinks that's true. He says this even though he has just publicly humiliated his father by refusing to join the party. He says this even though he defies his father's will, which has been abundantly made clear now that he ought to love his brother, throw his arms around him, and come into the house and celebrate. He defies him. And yet at the same time, I have never, ever disobeyed you. The second chilly thing is he says, I've never disobeyed a single command, but the truth is he's never really obeyed one. Not from his heart which is what really matters. He doesn't know a thing about obedience. He understands conformity. He knows about following orders, but not obedience from the heart. He knows nothing of the willing obedience that comes from a loving heart. The third chilling thing is the irony. All these years I've been working as a slave, slaving for you. Such irony here. The prodigal son, remember, when he was going to come back, he decided that he could at least come back under the hired servant plan. But he's so overwhelmed by his father's love when he returns, he gives up on that. Here's the son who stayed home, has done all the right things these years, but he thinks of himself not as a son. What does he think of himself as? The hired servant, the slave. I've been slaving all this time. It's unfair, right? This son of yours comes back. He gets a fattened calf. He gets away with doing bad. I get no celebration for doing good. It's unfair. This is the heart of the elder brother. 
How many of you have had two or more kids? How many of you have ever heard one child claiming the other child got a later bedtime, a bigger portion, a milder punishment, or a nicer present? Did you ever hear claims of unfairness? Yeah, all the time. It's playing the game of who got more here? Who got more? But God isn't in that game. God is in the game of dispensing grace, and there is no scorekeeping. There is no quantifying or comparing when you've received complete grace and forgiveness. But the elder brother has chosen to go through his life as a perpetual, unappreciated victim. Oh, woe is me. I'm so underappreciated. So he secretly thinks that the prodigal son has had more fun all this time. He secretly suspects that the other son, his brother, has had a better life in this distant country. And now having lived through all that goodness that life had to offer him there, he doesn't know, he doesn't know yet that his, his brother was in there in the trough eating with the pigs. He just thinks it was all gravy, all goodness, all lavish living and he's come back now and fallen on grace and has welcomed home. And, the other, and on the other hand, I've had to be the one to suffer. I've had to be the one to stay at home and slave. So he says to himself, I, I had to stay home. I have to walk the straight and narrow. I have to give up all the fun. I better be compensated for all this. Anytime you start to say, I have to, I have to, I have to, Go run again and look in the mirror. I have to, I had to, I had to, I had to. I, I better get compensated for this. Instead of rejoicing at God's goodness to another, the elder brother compares and complains. Friends, it's the most miserable way to live. To always be looking sideways. To always be comparing. To always think somebody got a better deal than you did. I don't know there's a better deal than getting grace and forgiveness and eternal life. Is there? Is there a better deal than that? I don't think so. There's a word for this type of thinking that we're owed something. It's entitlement. This son has fallen into the trap of thinking the good deeds that he has been doing for his father entitles him to power and privileges that no other son should have. Certainly not one who has shamed the family by his behavior. All these years, he says, I've labored, and what do I get? I don't even get a goat. Those of us who have followed Jesus for some time have to be careful, friends, that we don't slip into this ourselves. I deserve some kind of recognition or some kind of say or some kind of respect or some kind of perk or some kind of compensation for all the years I've labored, for all the years I've slaved for God or for your church. The moment you think you're entitled to anything because of who you think you are or what you've done, as quick as you can, run into the bathroom and look in the mirror and have a good look at yourself. You've just chosen to enroll in the hired servant plan. You have decided that your faith is a contract that you have made with God and God owes you for having signed it. The Father in this parable, and correspondingly our Father in heaven, is not looking for employees. He's looking for relationships. The reality is all of God's children need exactly the same thing, the same grace. The exact same saving from sin. And it's a mistake to think our long list of sacrifices in some way contributes to that process. Entitlement is a chilling attitude for three reasons. First, it underestimates the extent of God's love and grace towards sinners, towards you and I. I mean, this alone is bad enough that we would underestimate how much God loves, how much God cares, how much he knows and longs to be with each one of us. To underestimate that is unforgivable in many ways. Second, Entitlement demonstrates a completely mistaken concept of God and his grace. That it, it is 
we think it's deserved. We start to go down this. I, I, I did something for this. It's so not deserved. It's always and forever undeserved. There is no way to earn grace. We've all fallen short. We only get grace because God loves us and just freely gives it. What the younger brother came to see, but at least to the end of the parable, the older one didn't, is that the glorious reward of a profound relationship with our Father, the Father, is simply the intensification of the relationship itself. Do you believe that? The glorious reward of a profound relationship with our God is simply that that relationship just gets intensified more and more and more. That's reward enough. There's a party going on. It's the, in the kingdom of God, and it's at work in secret ways here on this earth. And it is made up of all those who learn how to rejoice with those who rejoice, who learn to celebrate the good fortune of others, to live with a joyful heart, the same joyful heart that the Father has, welcoming all who come home. Some of you are here, and you're sitting outside the house on the front step and you refuse to come into the master's house, and you're bitter because somebody else has gotten the breaks that you are sure you ought to have got. You're not the guest of honor at every party. The question is, will you learn to rejoice with those who rejoice? Will you learn the discipline of gratitude to be grateful for your life, for your gifts, for your work, for your relationships, for your family, for the salvation God offers you? Will you be grateful for your life? God gave it to you. Because if you won't, if you don't, you'll never be grateful at all. Instead of thinking, why can't that be me? Will you just come to the party? Will you throw your arms around those who are being celebrated? Congratulate them. Rejoice with them. Will you have the heart of the father? Will you have the heart of the elder brother? What heart will you have when someone walks in to the house? When someone changes the whole destiny before them and accepts God's grace and walks in, are you thinking, oh man, they hardly deserve this? That's what the elder brother's heart said. This is real important stuff, folks. Then there's a third characteristic of the cold heart of the elder brother, and it's the spirit, spirit of icy judgmentalism. But when this son of yours came back, do you notice what phrase he uses to refer to the prodigal son? This son of yours. Not this brother of mine. This son of yours. Very often when someone wants to do something they know isn't right, they will avoid using the person's name or referring to their relationship with that person as a way to kind of dehumanize that person. The elder son has already done it once by not referring to his dad as father when he addressed him. In the story of David and Bathsheba, a servant tried to warn David by saying, David, isn't that Bathsheba? The wife of... But to David, she was just that woman. Saul, when he's furious with his son, Jonathan said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. He doesn't say, my son. Do you see that? We see this all the time in real life, don't we? We don't want to make it personal unless it reflects well on us. Parents do this thing all the time. Your child does something good. That's my boy right there. That's, that's him. That's my boy. He does something bad. What did your son do? Right? What has the son of yours done? In our story, the elder brother says to his father, this son of yours has squandered your money, not this brother of mine. Son of yours is a phrase that would be said by someone who is outside the family. Someone who is a stranger would say this. That's what the elder brother is doing, friends. He's speaking as if he's not part of the family. Judgment is not when somebody points out what someone else has done wrong. That's not judgment. I've had people point out what's wrong with me several times a day. But I know they're for me. I know they want to, me to grow and flourish. Judging is when you speak from a distance and you feel no compassion whatsoever. You feel no obligation to help and instead secretly enjoy the failure of that person. You enjoy the feeling of righteous indignation. You adopt a posture of suspicion. You're the judge. 
There is something inside of us that kind of appoints ourselves to be watchdog over what is right and what is wrong. The elder brother's doing this exactly. He assumes the worst. He knows what's right and wrong, and this is wrong. The other brother's syndrome, if you will. You project the worst onto people. Notice what's said here. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. This is a real interesting part of Jesus' story. Where in the first part of Jesus' story did it mention prostitute? It never did. It's not mentioned. There's no mention of prostitutes. It says that the prodigal son squandered the money in what might be called wild living. There's no mention of what that wild living is. There's no mention of prostitutes whatsoever. Where did that come from? The elder brother just threw that in. He wants to paint as bad a picture of his brother as he can. There's a party going on for those who have learned what Jesus meant when he said, judge not. And some of you are sitting on the front step and you will not come into the master's house because the truth is you enjoy being judge and jury. You may mask it with a veneer of piety. You may sound kind of religious on the surface, try to sound fairly positive or laugh fairly frequently. But the truth is there's a kind of negative judgmental spirit in you that bubbles up and it's toxic. You just reflexively find fault with those around you. Passing judgment has become kind of a habit. It's become your nature. There's a barbed comment behind almost everything you say. The question for you is, will you resign today as the judge of the universe? Will you give up the judgmental spirit that's going on inside your heart that not only sees wrong, but feels no compassion, no warmth, no obligation to help, just enjoys passing judgment? Will you accept your position as yet another prodigal son or daughter who needs to come home? Because that's exactly who you are. Then the father talks to the elder brother just as he talked to the prodigal son. He overlooks all the insults that the son has leveled at him, and instead, he addresses the son who has not bothered or deemed himself to be worthy of calling his dad father. The father calls his, his son, my son. Do you see the difference? Immediately, my son, my son. He gives him that title. You're always with me and everything I have is yours. And what the father is really saying is, don't you realize that to live at home with me, day by day, moment by moment, to live in my love, to share all the things with me, to partner throughout life with me, these are the greatest gifts. Do you see this from God's perspective? This is what he's trying to say to us. Don't you realize that to live at home with me our Father in heaven says, to live in my love, to share all the things with me, to partner throughout life with me, these are the greatest gifts. The Father says to his Son what the Father says to you and I right now, what I have been offering you all these years is me. Me. All that is me. Love, grace, forgiveness, fulfillment, strength, direction, Joy, we could go on. What I've been offering you is me. And if living at home with me is not enough, then all the parties and all the rewards and all the goats in the world will never be enough. Every time your brother's in the limelight, every time somebody else is celebrated, it will bug you, it will choke you. And then he goes on. But son... We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Not only does the father appeal to reason here, he explains the logic for such a celebration, but he also appeals to the son's sense of family. My child, my son, this is your brother. The father is infinitely gracious with his son, isn't he? And yet at the same time, also infinitely firm. He will not apologize. He will not stop the party. He knows what the elder son is after. The elder son wants his father to feel really bad about what he's doing and call the party off and punish the prodigal son. And the father won't do that. The problem with the older brother is that he's just as prodigal as the other brother. He's just as prodigal, just as wasteful of his relationship with his father as his younger brother is. 
He never utilized the blessings at his disposal. He thought he had to earn those blessings. He failed to understand his father's love and grace and failed to comprehend the meaning of forgiveness. Again, picture now Jesus' listeners. All of the drama, all of the tension in this moment. Some of them are filled with joy because they've heard this story. They think, that was me. I was the one that was lost. I'm now back home. Free. I'm free. I'm free from resentment. I'm free from the bitterness. I'm free from the judgmentalism that infects me. That's me. That's me. I'm home now. And God Almighty has thrown me a party. Some of them know when he talked about the elder brother exactly who he was talking about. All of them stand there with bated breath waiting to see what will Jesus say next? What, 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 what's going to be the, the punchline here? Where, where, what's this older brother going to do? What is the elder brother going to say? How will it end? The elder brother is outside the house, refusing to go in, separate from the celebration, standing in the darkness. And it wasn't his years of service and obedience and hard work that put him out there. It was his heart. See, the real punchline of this whole parable is that the person who continues in lostness at this point is not the one who took his inheritance and ran away and then realized, came to his senses and confessed and came home, but the one who was... who, who those of listening, those who were listening would have assumed had never been lost in the first place. And he's speaking directly then to all those who've gathered thinking, I don't, I'm, I've, I'd never lo- I was never lost. I was never lost. I'm, 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 go- I'm golden. And then Jesus stops. He just walks away. He just walks away. Right at the climax of the story, he just walks away. He never finishes the parable. Why? It's not because he couldn't think of an ending. He's the greatest teacher who ever lived. This is intentional. It's because the ending had yet to be written for this prodigal son. It's because all those listening to Jesus who have to decide what son are you? Are you outside the the father's house? Are you inside? Now you will have to decide. How do you think it will end? How do you think it will end for you? For you see, we are all prodigals. Every last single one of us, we're all prodigals. We've all chosen our own paths over God. We've all chosen our own words over God's word. We've all chosen our own desires over God's. And we've gone and spent that which God has given us so lavishly, foolishly on other things. How do you think it will end for you? I want us to take a moment here, just to reflect, just a quiet moment. I want us to reflect on our relationship with God. There's going to be some questions underneath me there on the screen. Are you inside or outside of the master's house? Are you a believer? Do you know that to the depths of your heart? Have you confessed? Have you recognized your waywardness? Or have you always thought, ah, I I never walked away. I've, I've just always been there. And it kind of bugs me when somebody else kind of just waltzes in after living this crazy life all this time. Maybe you've never entered the house. God is saying, I don't want, and I'm not waiting until you clean yourself up. I'm just welcoming you into the house right now. Or maybe you've been a follower for a while, and how's your relationship with with people in your life? How's your relationship with God? Are you unintentionally standing outside, reserving judgment? What could be the brokenness you need to confess today? See, God hasn't quit pleading with every prodigal. 
God is still pleading with every prodigal. Don't look at what I'm doing for other people. Look at what I'm doing for you. I have died on the cross for you. I want you to come home. I want you to be with me. Would you bow your heads? Both of these stories of the sons are actually about coming home. One was far away and couldn't see it. The other had home so close, he also couldn't see it. Both had the same father's overwhelming love, overwhelming grace, always waiting for them. Always. How does your story end? You know, a case can be made that there is yet still another prodigal in this story. If the definition of a prodigal is one who spends or gives away his resources freely, extravagantly, lavishly, without thought of return, with abandon, there is one who does it positively. There is one who does it generously. There is one who does it because those he gives it to are the most precious things to him. It's the Father. It's the Father. We have a prodigal God. It should just give you shivers. We have a prodigal God. Think about it. God recklessly, freely, extravagantly lavishes his grace and forgiveness on us. All that we can never hope to earn or ever deserve, he just gives to us. He just pours it out on us if we turn, if we'll come home. God's amazing grace and never-ending love are our greatest and only hope, and it's ours to have if we will come to our senses and turn our heart towards him and enter into his home, his family, his kingdom. And you can know this. You can simply say yes. Yes, Father, I've wandered away from you. If not physically, then certainly figuratively, certainly spiritually. I turn back to you now and discover that you've been waiting for me all this. You've been following me. You're right behind me all this time. Thank you. And thank you for your love and for your grace and for not giving up on me. Forgive me. Free me from the resentment, the bitterness, the judgmentalism that infects me. Make me whole again and wholly able to follow you. Lead me, guide me, free me, fill me. Use me as a messenger of your love and forgiveness to others. For us all, Father, we need to remember why we do what we do. We serve you to please you because we love you. Certainly not for our own gain. Certainly not for our own pleasure. Forgive us for the pride and sense of entitlement that comes when we think we're so good we've earned a better standing with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being the perfect Father. We are so honored to receive your love and your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Help us to share it with others as you have commanded us to do. Help us to give others around us the freedom to fail and to learn from their mistakes as you give that freedom to us to freely choose you. Help us to offer forgiveness as you have forgiven us. Help us to give favor to others as you have given us favor. We love you and we pray for this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen.